Welcome to Renovate, Remodel, Revolt with Whitney Page. I'm Whitney Page, and I live on one of the most beautiful islands in the entire world. But I live in one of the most toxic houses I've ever encountered. Traditional renovation is toxic, and it's wasteful. Bad for the environment, bad for the people who work on the project, and bad for the people who live in the project. Like my son that you can hear in the background. Thanks for joining us on this episode. We're talking to someone who's tackling in a big way this problem of healthier buildings. I hope you enjoy this episode. Be sure to check the show notes for links, more information, vocabulary, things like that. And reach out. Shoot me an email. Renovate, remodel, revolt at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And now sit back and enjoy hearing from the ever-lovely, ever-inspiring, ever-super-smart Allison Mears. Okay, we're, we are live. So, Miss Allison Mears, could you please introduce yourself? How would you introduce yourself if we had never met? Oh, have, if we'd never met? Uh, I, yeah, what an interesting question. I'll introduce myself in the way I typically do when I'm working in a kind of professional context. So I'm Alison Mears. I'm an associate professor of architecture at Parsons School of Design in New York City. I'm also the co-founder and director of Healthy Materials Lab at Parsons. If I introduce myself non-professionally, yes. I might say that I'm a recovering architect who used to work in professional practice and really kind of didn't like it very much. And then when I had children, I went back to teaching and I really loved teaching. So uh, part of me is uh, kind of trying to rethink of, of what it means to be an architect, what it means to be a mother, what it means to be a kind of more, com- whatever, not complete person. But um, yeah, a little bit more thoughtful than I might have been in my kind of late 20s, early 30s. So that's very interesting since you've been urging me to go to architecture school this fall. So why, <laughs> why do you feel that it's still worth pursuing for someone at the beginning of their career? Well, because I think it's a, it can be a fabulous education. It's an introduction to you know, this essential part of our life, that the place where we live and the places where we work, our cities, how we build cities, how we build our houses, how we build our offices. And there's, um, uh, there's a depth of uh, knowledge and uh, information and experience and history, um, an essential part of like what it means to be human in that idea of occupation and building that is for me, eternally interesting it's like why do we like to cook why do we like food why do we like to read why do we like great artwork you know architecture is part of that kind of body of human knowledge um, and experience that's hugely interesting so I think um, you know the study of architecture can be that a kind of rich um, it it can lead you to a rich understanding of, of the places where we live and the spaces that we occupy Um, When I was at school, it was a fairly traditional education where there were less women than men, where um, it was very hard education and that people um, was very much about individuals and individual voices and proving yourself in the context of a a very male dominated world. So it was very, um, it's very, 
personally and emotionally quite challenging. I mean, you know that from your work in construction, what it means to be a woman in that context. So you change, right? You, when I was a young woman in a different world, I changed the way I was so that I could um, participate in that world equally. And that for me was at odds with really who I really was. So I found that, you know, at school quite uh, challenging, you know, not that I, I couldn't do it. I came from Australia, so I'm a tough, tough girl, you know. <laughs> But, um, but uh, professionally, I found that working in a corporate office really uh, kind of anti-human actually was, you know, it was, wasn't a great experience. It wasn't enjoyable. It's not what I loved about the study of architecture. For example, I, I, I mean, I love the study of architecture. I love the practice of architecture um, when it's in a, in a different kind of context. So what the work that I'm doing now in the lab with Jansara Ruth is really kind of where I want to be because we determine our course and we determine who we work with and we're very mission driven. So it feels much more compatible with who I really am and my aspirations for my life. And actually the way I think architecture should be, that it should be this more richer, more inclusive, more accepting um, profession. I feel like in the optimistic circles that I operate within, that applies to all parts of our life that you just listed, you know, in the food scene, in it's, it's, a, it's starting to um, apply to all sectors. And I don't know if that's a response to where we are, or if that's just because people are moving forward, and we're starting to see that forward progression. But it is interesting to have a conversation with someone who has done so much work and in the building sector. And I think I get overwhelmed talking about the Healthy Materials Lab because it's so encompassed. It's a, such a holistic approach. You know, you've, you've now branched off to do the affordable housing aspect as well. And there's such a piece of equity. And, and so it's just this really broad umbrella. And then, and then you can get so nuanced with it. What I would like you to expand on is, you know, why did you, you and Jonasara start the Healthy Materials Lab and why, in your words, is it so important for that information to be out there? I think because in my education and, and my professional practice and in teaching, the idea um, that there were toxic chemicals in building products was, was actually nothing that I ever studied. I didn't ever study that in school and it wasn't, wasn't really anything that we talked about in practice. I mean, I think we knew about lead and asbestos legacy chemicals, and that was something, you know, you had to be aware of, and you had to think about abatement and um, containing, you know, things like asbestos and lead in building. Um, so I understood that, but it wasn't till about uh, uh, 2014, I guess seven years ago or so, that I started being part of a working group, group um, that was started by Amanda Kaminsky, who worked at, um, the Durst, with the Durst uh, family, uh, um, uh, family of developers in New York City, who were really looking at the kind of leading, the cutting edge of sustainability, where I, um, where I began to understand that you know, in com there were these toxic chemicals in common building products like uh, gypsum board or in insulation or in the paints, you know, that, that we use. Very common building products, and that to me. I have to say it was such a surprise. I was so shocked that, you know, that, that, that potentially the work that I was doing and specifying any of those products was leading to this introduction of 
of building products that could cause harm, you know, to uh, pregnant women, to children, to seniors, to adolescents, to a whole bunch of people, but particularly to, to communities that are most vulnerable through poverty, through generations of poverty. And so even though I have to say, my mother was a chemist, that chemistry was not like such a great topic for me, subject for me in school. So I'm not really that good at chemistry, but it, this work that I'm doing led me to, to be aware of the, this relationship be, between chemicals, common chemicals and, our, and human health. So, so I think that it was more that I was, um, I was so horrified that um, um, you know, the way we built could make us sick, could make any of us sick, but um, I thought it would be an interesting kind of project to begin to, to work in this space. That's a really interesting way of coming coming to it. It sounds like you almost felt responsible for causing harm, and now you're trying to abate that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. And unknowingly, that's for me that was the the worst thing that that I, you know that me and my work as an architect and others who who you know work in the professions just weren't aware that this this was a problem and and, and quite a an important and um, significant problem in the way that we worked. So I think that, you know, with as an architect, you're supposed to, you're responsible for the health, safety, and kind of welfare, wellness of people who occupy your buildings. It's, you know, it's a mandate, it's part of your professional responsibility to, to do that, to protect the, the people who inhabit your buildings. So, you know, this is a part of that and, and we're often at odds with, with we, what we're committing to do, which is to do, to do good in terms of the, the buildings that we um, design and build. If someone gave you the keys to the castle and you were able to kind of be in charge of the world, mm-hmm. how would you start tackling this issue of making our homes healthier? Well, I... You know, it's a complicated issue, right? <clears throat> so I think, um, and it's always been complicated for us. It's always been challenging for us. Um, I used to be the Dean of the School of Design Strategies at Parsons, right? So super interested in systems and strategic, strategic approaches to problems using design as a kind of tool, as a means to an end. And so when we began the project, we really tried to think of the entire system that these building products were part of. So from production all the way through to end of life and ideally to new lives in terms of kind of a circular system. And I think when you look at the problem in that way, um, it allows you to step back and really say, you know, there's a design problem here. The problem is that we need to design better products so that at every point in the system, they're benign. They're not causing harm to the people who are making them in the factory. They're not causing harm to the people who are selling them in the store or to the installers like you, the contractors on site. They're not causing harm at the end of their life in terms of landfill and you know, the degradation of soil and water. But they're actually benign products that have these endless and um, productive lives that complement our life in the world. So if, you know, if I had my magic wand and I was that fairy, you know, and, and this part of the work that we do is, is really to think of how we can create those benign kind of systems and be radical about it, actually, because it's not a, 
you know, this is not a problem that we can push off to the future. This is a problem that exists right now, every day. You know, the, we're inside with COVID all the time. And it's, you know, I think it's, um, it's, it's disturbing for people to understand that their homes could be a, a problem for themselves or for their children in particular. So it's, it's urgent work and it's work that we, we are committed to. And it's, it goes beyond just saying, you know, we need to specify better products. You know, for us, it's really advocating for us, us all to be part of this process. First of all, that we understand it's a problem, but then to start coming up with solutions as a group, you know, everybody in, in construction and manufacturers, developers, particularly in, you know, in the housing world and for us, the housing for everyone, that these, that, that new buildings going forward really do become better places to live. So that, that's what we're committed to doing. We're not just at the saying we need education and, and then we're done. You know, that we, we um, transfer this knowledge to others and that's it for us. For us, it's really that we're designers and architects as well. So we wanna be acting in a way that changes practice. You know, that isn't just about theoretical knowledge. We have so many existing structures, a lot of people that are not wealthy can't afford to move out of their existing structure. And so with my background being so obsessed with hempcrete, it's like, I'm trying to bridge these two worlds, you mm -hmm. know, that's really where, what I'm doing. I'm trying to figure out, can we use permeable materials in renovating or retrofitting our current homes? Can we, can we bridge the gap between, you know, carbon sequestering materials and, and then these toxic homes that we live in currently? What do you think about yes. that? Yeah, of course we can, right? Of course we can. And yes. how do we do it? <laughs> yeah, so, so, so we're working on a project in Newcastle, Pennsylvania with Cameron and Don Services, Laurie Datner from Don Services. Do you know about this project? No, I don't. Oh, okay. So, so this is this is a renovation project, and for us, obviously, the embodied carbon issue, the operational carbon issue, what we're facing in terms of climate change is critical at this moment in time. And we have housing stock, and we have buildings that are that we already have. So, how do we retrofit and renovate them so that they are healthier places? So this project in Newcastle, Pennsylvania with Don Services and Don Services is a housing, is a housing provider. They are inter interested in a, a full range of accessibility. So not only physical and kind of mental accessibility to housing, but also financial accessibility to housing. Fabulous organization aligned with our people here, Whitney, in that they're looking at that system in the same way that we are. So. Uh, last summer was their second summer of growing industrial hemp uh, with Amish farmers outside of um, Newcastle and they harvested um, quite a lot of hemp. They redded it and they processed it um, and they created, um, they divided the fiber from the herd. Um, in the fall, I think, or winter, they processed that, um, some of that fiber, I think, into hemp wood, that's right. Um, and they're looking to create these, um, uh, you know, these virtual cycles of, of hemp production. So industrial hemp has the ability to revive 
agriculture in that area by becoming a viable crop, right, for um, all of the products that can come from that hemp. So it's an amazing thing for, for the farmers, their local farmers. And plus it starts to restore the soil, as we know, regenerate the soil. And then their, their plan is to really think, okay, so then we have the raw materials for these other products. So let's look at creating wood boards with that. Let's see what the fiber opportunities are and let's start building the houses that we typically build in Newcastle with hemp and lime. So um, Newcastle is a post-industrial city, has a lot of abandoned houses. Um, that are left as a result of the deindustrialization of the city. So there are a bunch of houses that are already in um, Newcastle. There are wood balloon frame houses. So this first project that we're working on with them is really to take the uh, building down to the frame and foundations, the wood frame, and then to build a, an interior frame to kind of reinforce that exterior frame. And then to use a hemp lime blown in matrix to create a new wall around the perimeter of the house and up to the eaves. Um, and so what this new wall is going to do is going to do all the, the things you would want it to do, right? It's going to be permeable. So it's going to be breathable. It's going to be plastered on the outside and the inside with the hemp lime mixture. And the kind of extraordinary thing about it in this case, in this renovation project is that it's going to act as a way of retarding flame spread in this wooden structure. So the, the, the challenging thing with these old wood structures is they're really flammable. And even if you, no matter what you do, they're incredibly flammable. And so the hemp lime is gonna be acting to, to, um, to um, protect the existing wooden frame and create this new little green house. Um, so where help Cameron is, is working on the kind of tech technology of the wall and installing the wall, and Alex Sparrow is acting as a consultant on this building with Flare. We're doing the design work and helping with the coordination of the project with them. Um, and it's a, it's a fabulous project. It's a tiny little project, but what we're hoping to do is to record every part of the process so that we'll have all of the uh, building section um, and plan information that we can share with others. We'll have the technology also um, documented so that people will understand the installation protocols and practices. We'll then do the testing on the wall to make sure that it has the necessary flame retardant qualities. It has the, um, you know, it has that ability to do that um, permeable exchange of humidity and air that we look for in a better, greener, healthier building. Um, flame retardant air, air testing, the thermal properties to make sure that it's insulating the house in the way that we would want it to. So it's a great model project for all kinds of reasons and it's going to be affordable and physically and, you know, and um, economically accessible. So it's a, it's a great project. We're raising money for that. Um, and then we hope that, you know, it will be something that can be replicated elsewhere. That is literally the thing I've been trying to do to my house for, for years. I, I, I'm so excited. And also just like, damn, I believe there is a collective consciousness because I often find this in my life, right. Where I'm like, there's this problem. And then 
turns out one of my my friends has is also feeling the same and is now working towards a solution. So I feel excited and also slightly defeated. Um, but no, 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 because it's only step one of the process. I'm teasing. It's okay. Right. I just I get I get this feeling often because I'm usually tapped into similar wavelengths um, of people, and I, um, you know, I'm just out here on a little island parenting children, and then I. I come up with uh, these grand ideas and then they just stay on the island. So, so what is the interior wall made from? Cause it so, has so to be permeable, right? It's permeable. So the structure, as you remember, right. From all of our hemp and lime, hempcrete one ones So that the actual kind of matrix of the wall is a hemp, is a hemp herd, lime and water mix, you know, uh, porous and, and, just airy enough to act as an insulating layer. The exterior layer of the wall is um, less hemp herd and more lime. So it's plastered, the exterior wall. And that plastered wall acts as waterproofing for the wall. So it resists the rainfall, but still allows um, the air to move um, both from the outside in and from the inside out. And then the interior wall is a thinner layer of, and again, less hemp herd, more lime and water. So it's a, a plaster, a thinner plaster, plastering on the inside of the wall. But when so they're the wall, using the spray technology, they have to have a backer board. So what is the backer board? Well, when they, when they, so Cameron's going to be spraying. Uh, spraying from the inside out okay and he's going to be using some old uh greenhouse polycarbonate sheeting as an exterior um uh formwork okay uh, so he's going to spray onto that and then remove and then it. he's going to take it off genius yeah. but what about so what about the electrical and the plumbing yeah so i think um i think it's going we will send you the details. It's going, <laughs> Lucky I think me. it's going along the base of the base of the wall for the outlets. We've got this double frame. So we've got the exterior um, existing frame of the house and the interior new wood stud frame. And then there's a gap in between, which is a fluffy gap that is filled with hemp lime, but it can be used as, as part of a chase space too. And it's also, we've got some diagonal bracing in there too, which is the other thing. So we're not using any plywood, um, um, uh, not formwork, plywood bracing on the sheathing. We're not using that. We're using diagonal uh, studs as a, as a bracing, as a way to brace the frame. So yeah, we can give you, we're working on the details right now. That's so amazing. Who conceptualized I, this project? Um, Don Services said we haven't had all these old houses and we should do something with them. And then they wanted to do a hemp lime project. And so we, we met Laurie when we met you at the hemp summit in Ketchum. In I don't know Laurie. Tell me about Laurie. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's a superstar. You would love her. Laurie Daitner, She's um, uh, she raises money for the organization. She used to um, work in the restaurant industry in the Soviet Union in Russia. She comes from Newcastle. So she was there. I think 15, maybe 20 years. And then she came back to Newcastle. Her family is from there. She joined on services um, because they needed some organizational and grant writing support. And she's a hemp, you know, she's like a hemp 
Yes. <laughs> and so she wanted to, she wanted to see if they could grow the hemp and she wanted to do everything just the way we all do. She loved the system, you know, and she just buys into the reason why it's such a kind of incredible thing. So she's been on the, the hemp train, you know, for as long as we have. And um, so she was looking to see how they could prototype um, hemp online building. So we could have just, I keep picturing heart emojis coming out of our eyes with hemp because we just love it so much. And we know that it's what we would want for our families, Mm -hmm. but what happens to all of these past used toxic materials? You know, when we, this is the question I keep coming up against in my, my own home that, as you know, is like a 60s, 70s toxic house. And I've had so many contractors say, just seal it up, like how we abate lead or asbestos, just seal it mm-hmm. up. Don't disturb it. It could get, if you leave it, it'll, you know, just seal it up with other toxic materials, like, you know, just joint compound all over that or whatever. Mm-hmm. So what happens in this ideal world where we are, we are retrofitting all of these old balloon frame homes with hemp lime, and then all mm-hmm. the things that got pulled out do those just even in a even in an ideal world where there's this cyclical economy and um you yeah. know the drywall's getting repurposed does is that just for poor people then that people that can't afford to do what they mm-hmm. want in their home yeah so i mean adon services has a reclaim part of their of their project a lot of these um small we worked, small towns have a similar kind of thing. We worked with a group in Warren, Ohio, it's a very similar kind of small city. And so what they'll do is, you know, they'll come into abandoned, mostly these are abandoned homes. So we can move on to your challenge in a second. But if we think about abandonment, so what they do is they come into a house that has some, has still has some potential, may have some problems with lead, may have some problems with asbestos. Um, and maybe degraded in a bunch of different ways. And so what they'll do is they'll take out the, the, the products in the house that have value, right? So the doors, for example, any of the wood paneling, um, any of the, um, you know, the stair or the whatever, the, the, the things that have value in the house and they'll either remove them or they'll leave them in there and they'll be part of the renovation. And what they'll then do is... Um, in Warren, they would they would do the remediation. They would remove the the asbestos, and the asbestos is toxic waste. Um, they would paint over the lead, and they would then embody the lead within the wall with with you know uh, layers of paint. You can do that with a lime based paint, you know, like Roma Bio or any of the other lime paints. The thing about lime paints is they'll they'll seal, they're like what, you know, the lime performs in the same way as it would in a hemp lime wall, in that the lime becomes stronger and stronger and kind of returns to that rock-like kind of surface. It's not like an acrylic paint that is just like wrapping glad wrap on the wall. So it feels, and I don't know this, you know, that's a piece of research that one would have to do, that by using a better paint like that, the way that you seal the lead would enable you to still live in that place, even though there might be remnants of the lead still on the wall. The problem is if you drill into it, obviously, and then you reveal the lead. The best case with lead and with many chemicals is you have to take them out, like the asbestos. You don't leave the asbestos in your house, do you know, because it's too toxic. So 
legacy chemicals, the chemicals that we work with now are hugely problematic and, and there are tough decisions that we have to, to make. We shouldn't be in this position. We shouldn't have to make these kinds of choices, but the fact is we do. So when it comes to, you know, 60s and 70s, well, 70s more post when I was, lead was, um, I think lead was uh, prohibited in the late 60s, early 70s, depending where you were in the country. But then we're faced with all these other plastic things. We, we're faced with all the terrible insulation, the rubbish insulation that may be in your house. Um, and you don't, you don't want that in your walls. You know, it's got flame retardants in it. It's got, you know, which are being emitted into the, into the inside the house, even if it's just through the dust, you know, in your cavities. And then the dust comes underneath on the bottom of the wall. Um, I mean, I, I, I think you have to remove them. And I think it's something that we have to come to terms with. And then the toxic waste, and we have to either recycle them, which we probably don't want to do because we don't want to reuse them as insulation in our houses. It's a, it's a, lot, of, it's a lot of waste and that's a lot of toxic waste. I'm just getting an image of a dumpster full of fiberglass insulation just out in space. Like we're like, yeah. we don't know what to do with it. Bye-bye. And the aliens find it and they're like, we don't want this. No one wants this. <laughs> yeah. So I'm working on a project with my students this semester and we're looking at this really toxic site in Queens that um, currently has a wastewater treatment plant on it. So it has this kind of um, decades of uh, waste from that processing of the water that is sunk into the soil and sits beneath the soil in this space. And we've doing, been doing a lot of research into remediation of sites like waste sites, wastewater sites, petroleum sites that have waste in them and, and ways of remediating those sites. So there are things you can do with those toxic sites. You can, um, you can, prevent those toxics from being um, from sinking into the wastewater or being released into the air you can cap them and reuse those sites but it's a it's a decades-long project you know it's not impossible well I was I was emailing Jeffrey Siegel because I found him through the the coursework yep. through the healthy materials lab and I haven't I haven't reached out or he hasn't reached out back yet but I'm, I'm hopeful but the reason I wanted to interview him is because he um, as a professor of mineralogy and I believe in uh, Canada right anyway yes. he was talking mm -hmm. about in the class the healthy materials class he was talking about these ceiling tiles that they were working on that could potentially purify the air and mm -hmm. I, and, and carbon based wallboard, um, mm -hmm. like ash, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, fly ash? No. no, no, not fly ash. No, that's the bad stuff. The, yeah. um, you know, like when you charcoal, okay. charcoal, 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 mm -hmm. charcoal, charcoal. So mm -hmm. he was talking about minerals as a way to purify the indoor, indoor air. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's a really interesting thought also, because when I talked to Liam, Liam said, Liam Donahue, he said that with um, hydroscopic sheep's wool, mm. it potentially will pull out the toxins from mm. the wallboard and then it just stores it. Mm -hmm. And so there's a really interesting process of like, okay, we're renovating our houses. We're trying to pull out all these toxins and then they still go somewhere. Yes. So you can't just put in a hemp wool 
insulation into a traditional home because it's just going to just suck out all of the toxins. And then it's just going to be not in the wall, but in the insulation. That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what do you say to, we recognize that we're in a state of emergency. We're in a state of emergency with carbon. If none of us are alive because global warming's effects have been so intense that we can't worry about our bodies getting cancer and our babies having reproductive issues because we won't be around. That's my positive spin on it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on about that. Mm. You know, uh, uh, <laughs> I think that uh, uh, the health of the planet and our own health are in- inexorably co- um, uh, connected, right? We can't look at one without the other our health, the planet's health, these are intertwined and we have to consider whatever we do as being um, potentially a benefit to the planet and and of ourselves. You know, I think about um, if we approach the idea of renovation of buildings, which we haven't done right yet, to say, how do we eliminate all of the toxics in existing buildings? How do we do that safely and benignly? And what do we do with those toxics after we remove them? Can we mine them? for you know, some kind of potential use going forward? Can we use them in you know, new, new kinds of factories where we can start actually differentiating the chemicals and capturing those chemicals and use them in industry for other kinds of uses? I mean, there's some interesting, I think, technology that, that looks at, at waste as a resource. Um, can we do that safely? And what does that mean for us? I think there are solutions to this problem if we confront, if we acknowledge that there is a problem, we state there is a problem, and we think about how we resolve this this problem. I mean, I'm optimistic about that just because I, I we've discovered solutions, small solutions, in the hemp line um, kind of alternatives to building that have so much potential that I have to imagine that there are solutions where we can kind of deactivate these chemicals and use them in ways that are potentially useful for us. Okay. Okay. I hear that. I mean, I thought it was, it was, it actually blew my mind a little bit how much energy use, I think a lot of times because to Mm -hmm. me, hemp lime is such a superior product. I'm just Mm -hmm. like, well, forget everything else. This Mm -hmm. is what I want to work with. And that comes from a place of being in the construction field and seeing not just being a homeowner, but being on the job site and knowing that that's such a a better product to work with as a human and the way that it's grown. I have friends on the Island that grow hemp. And so I know that that's also a very pleasant way to spend your time. Um, And so I think it was very enlightening though, because I had no idea how much energy we use. And I, it was a good reminder to think about energy and not just materials for me because I get stuck in that, but, but also consumption of energy. So, yeah, but I, I think, but, you know, the idea that we create these tight toxic boxes that, um, you know, where the air is controlled by small mechanical ventilation units to me is, is the problem actually. I mean, I don't think that's the solution at all. I mean, I think that's an awful way, an awful thing to do to people, to put them in toxic little boxes that happen to be energy efficient. That's a, that's a mechanized view of habitation that I just, I don't understand. 
Well, and I, I, I think that's, that's encouraging that you feel that way because I really did feel like a, the, the, the poor, the poor person who just, who isn't going to get hemp lime, who's just going to be like, well, I'm saving the planet through my energy efficiency and my toxic box that I live in, you know, because it really still feels so inaccessible. Mm -hmm. Hemp lime feels so inaccessible. It does to me. Yeah. Because it's just not the way. I mean, I'm going to interview one of my best friends on the Island. Who's a contractor with 40 years experience, because I want to know why, why is this so hard for people to adopt? Mm-hmm. We worked together in the job site and they would make fun of me, you know, I think with little, little signs and things, it was all in good fun, but it was this feeling of like, you're so radical. You're just so radical. I'm like, I'm not that radical. You know, right. why right. are you, he just went out on his own to have his own practice last year practice. I mean, his own construction company and he's still not able to make the jump. Mm -hmm. And they always say they want to, you know, I have multiple contractor friends out here that they want to, but is there a hemp project going on my Island yet? No. Mm -hmm. How long have I been talking about it? Years. Mm -hmm. So there is still a huge disconnect between people on the ground, building, renovating, and then all the work that we're doing that you're doing in, you know, Mm -hmm. the academic sector. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's, you know, construction is a very conservative industry. It's very, you know, it has also been quite traditional in terms of building practices, right? There's been an evolution in materials use, you know, in terms of more and more petrochemically based products. But, um, you know, people don't like to take risks on site because if you take a risk, often it can fail and then you're, you know, you're responsible. Yeah, you're left holding, you know, that problem. And, you know, there are economic considerations, financial considerations to doing that. But, you know, there are, you know, there are, like, if we think of their cork insulation, for example, cork insulation is a pretty interesting um, uh, material, doesn't have any binders and it's just cork, you know, it's crushed up, right? And it's, you know, it's um, autoclaved together, it's squashed together so that it creates this, you know, insulation that is benign, doesn't emit any chemicals. There are, you know, a, run, a bunch of, in, uh, of other kinds of insulatory materials that you could think of to insulate your house. But it's this idea of, you know, how you use it and the way you're living in your house that to me is the most important thing is do we wanna be in these sealed, hermetically sealed environments that are completely made of plastic? Or do we wanna start to think about being, you know, more um, part of an ecosystem where we breathe the building breeze, there's this um, exchange of moisture, sometimes of heat. It doesn't mean that, you know, our operational carbon loads are incredibly high to do that. We don't want to do that. You know, we don't want to contribute any more CO2. We don't want to be burning fossil fuels. But there is a kind of happy medium, I think, where we have to think of ourselves as, as part of that system, not separate from it. In our, in our own homes, you know, we breathe. We emit humidity all the time. We cook that puts steam and and heat into the the house. You know, if we can't do some kind of exchange there and capture some of that heat or use that heat more efficiently, then, you know, it's a problem. It's a mindset. I, I really do think it's a mindset more than anything else. It's like, how can we do a better job? what we're doing here and and emit less co2 
not use um, petrochemically based products if we can. There are, you know, lime-based paint is on the market. It, it is a comparable price to most other acrylic based paints. It, you know, if you painted it on your gypsum board, your gypsum board is a, a fibrous mineral based um, product. It's got paper on either side of it. You put it on top of that. You begin to have a little bit of a, a, a wall there that is not a plastic wall that will do a little bit of exchange in the room. It's not sealing you in that room. There are small things I think you can do. You can have a wood floor where you use a finish that is a benign finish. You know, you can open your windows. <laughs> you know, I, I, I do think there are small steps that you can make and, 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 and achieve energy efficiencies without the sealing the box kind of approach. And I think that brings up the topic that John Sara's next talk is going to be about, which is also what you bring into your house. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've been talking mostly about the, the built environment, but also mm -hmm. what goes in the built environment, the furniture and the, you know, the teething rings I give Margot and all the things that we, that we bring in every day. I mean, I think that's why it gets so overwhelming. I was going to ask you, you know, do you feel because you're just working so hard, man, you're so, you're so busy. Do you feel ever like a heavy weight on you with all of this new information, all of this? You know, it's the thing about being an architect or a designer because it, information is, is knowledge, is power, right? You have this stuff, you know something, so what do you do with it? That for me is exciting thing, like this little project in Newcastle, we may be working on a little project in Minnesota on designing elder housing on, um, you know, indigenous land. Those, these kinds of projects, we just get so excited about them, you know, and, and having models where we can turn to this prototype and say, you know, this is functioning. This was affordable. This works. And you provide happy, beautiful places for people to live. Why wouldn't that be the ideal? Do you know? Do you feel ever in danger because you are radicalizing the building industry? I don't know. <laughs> no, great. No, that's no. great. As whistleblowers against the petrochemical mm, industry oh, yeah. that we would become threatened. And it really scared me for a while. You know, I mean, just this idea that, that we are so radical and that we're going against these big industries, which is true, we're going against, you know, the oil industry, the natural gas industry. I mean, it, yeah, I think that's a real concern. <laughs> but I think the whole, you know, this, this sense of, kind of um, the imminent crisis that we're facing, you know, people recognize that the whole petroleum industry, you know, the whole fossil fuel industry is an industry on decline. It has to be. And so when you get big businesses and people that are investing billions of dollars saying we need to look for alternatives, then we're just tagging along with those guys, you know? The yeah, but sometimes when people are getting pushed out of power, they grasp at strings on their way down, right? Yeah. And I guess that's yeah. what I'm afraid of. Yeah. I don't know. You know, we oh. talked to this amazing organization uh, when we were doing the podcast out in Kentucky. We talked about just transitions and, you know, we have to think of equity in everything we do. We have to redress this balance. And, you know, in many ways, the petrochemical industry, the tobacco industry, the lead industry before that, these were, you know, unholy industries that really have left us with a legacy of harm and, you know, um, 
terrible problems that we now have to turn around and fix. And so, you know, in terms of the kind of racist policies, in terms of their abuse of workers, in their health, if, if for nothing else, do you know, and I just, I don't, I don't know, I'm still idealistic, you know, I still think that we should create a better world for ourselves and our babies here. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think another project that would be really interesting, you're probably already on it, is, um, you know, the 3D printing, the 3D printing of homes, and that there was the one in Italy that was done with the earth materials versus, yeah. you know, the concrete that they're doing in Austin. Mm -hmm. I, I, of course, I'm like, is there a hemp lime slurry that that gets made, you know? Mm -hmm. you yeah, no, no, no. We, we wrote to them recently to ask what kind of binders they're putting in their, <laughs> in their mixes, <laughs> obviously, right? Because this is the thing, and this is what Pele was talking about yesterday, right? On this call, Martha Lewis and, and Pele um, were, were really, I mean, they were diving into, you know, it's great to have, you know, hemp insulation, but if you have a plastic binder or plastic mesh in there, you know, you're introducing a plastic into something that is benign. Or how are you fireproofing some of these insulations that are bio-based? Are you then using, you know, flame retardants that are incredibly toxic? So you have to ask these questions. And because maybe they just hemp. don't know yet. Maybe they nobody, right. nobody has turned them on to hemp lime yet. Right, 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 right. And, and the other bio-based, I mean, I'm super interested in plant-based construction, you know, and I think of, you know, um, Chris Magwood's uh, work in Canada, right? And his saying, you know, that, and also Alex Sparrow too, that, that you work locally. You look at the, you know, the materials, the ingredients in your own, in your own place and look to build with those. And I, I really think that's important. And that local manufacturing, local production, you know, helps rebuild communities instead of it always being centralized and remote. And those local materials then respond to local conditions. So I think there's a lot of super interesting work that's happening there and research that's also happening. You know, I guess I wonder, you know, how how are we going to get back to a place where we value the local things enough that we can make mm -hmm. them a priority? Because I live in the Northwest. Obviously, one of the resources we hey. have is timber. But mm -hmm. even out here, we have people that can plane your own timber for you that from the trees on your property. But it's a luxury it's mm -hmm. not, it's not the way that, that most homes are built out here because imported timber is um, more affordable, cheaper. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say more affordable. I don't like that. It's cheaper. Mm -hmm. And that's a shame to me because it's like, I looked around in my idealistic way and I was like, why aren't we using clay and timber? We have both those things on this Island. And it's, I think affordability is, is a huge issue. Yeah, so I think it's the scale that, that there's a scale of their production that they can't um, they can't uh, um, mill the timber to to make it more affordable because there's not a demand for it, or is it sold at a premium because it is a kind of niche product? I think is it's it sold as a premium because I think out here people are trying to make a living wage because the cost of living out here is so expensive mm -hmm. and so it is a it's a niche market and I also think it's human labor is very expensive mm -hmm. and it takes work it takes a lot of work mm -hmm. yeah so so maybe it's you know maybe it's the islands supporting you know the um, you know helping the um the 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 forestry people on your island um 
and helping it to become more affordable for the local population? You know, is it that the, you know, you don't have transportation costs? It should be that it's less expensive than importing something from somewhere else. So I guess what are the barriers to making it more affordable? Should you be planting more forests? You know, is that um, an issue? Should the mill works be built more efficient? Yeah. What's the system that's creating that wood product and creating it in a way that makes it too expensive for regular people to afford? This is making me feel very inspired to act locally, think globally, <laughs> you know, because, because it feels like sometimes when I talk to you, it's like y'all are, y'all are taking care of so many things and it makes me feel energized and excited, like finding out about the fact that you emailed the 3D printing people that makes me laugh because I was about to email them after this. So it's like, you know, we're on the same wavelength, but my island, I think, could be such a interesting case study. Well, I should let you go because I know you're busy and I am also busy (laughs) with this baby who's wiggly. Um, Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And um, we'll keep we'll keep chatting. That'd be great. Good luck. Lovely. Thank you. you. Lovely. See you. you. Bye bye. Bye bye.